0: Everybody in the room, everybody joining us online. My name is David. I have the privilege of leading and directing the ports on Tuesday nights. So excited to continue this series. Get excited. Dying to live. We're looking at Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. Today we're going to jump into chapter 8. I'm going to read the passage starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. Written by the Apostle Paul. We're going to go through 17 verses. I'm going to read them up top. So if you have not had a quiet time, you are about to get it in right now. So verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, Sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh. And Paul's about to contrast those who live according to the flesh versus the spirit. By flesh, it's not a word we use a lot. It just means the sin nature. Those who live according to what comes naturally. Who do what they want whenever they want with whoever they want. Versus those who are led by this new spirit, the spirit of God in their life. They have their minds set on what the flesh, sin nature, desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit of Christ gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to you and your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh or to our sin nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Well, this past Friday, I have a five-year-old son, and we were going on his first Adventure Guides camp out. Adventure Guides is like Indian guides or Indian princesses if You grew up doing that and we were going to go on his first ever camp out. And so I did what any dad does, which is go full send, making sure everything needed to have a great time and make great memories would be taken care of. So I got us a tent. I got him a sleeping bag. I got my sleeping bag. Got everything planned out. Got like 14 different flashlights that he would have whatever one he wanted to have. Planned the whole evening, took off early from work, drove out early out there, said, man, where do you want to go to dinner? We'll go wherever you want which is really safe when you're five because there's two options, McDonald's and Chick-fil-A. So we found the Chick-fil-A, get whatever you want. Man, after that, you want some candy, you want Sour Patch, whatever it is, we're gonna have an amazing time. Get to the camp out, things are going great. He gets to stay up as late as he wants, which was 10.30, the latest he'd ever stayed up in his entire life. (laughs) You want a s'more? Of course you can have a s'more. you can have two s'mores. We're going to have an amazing time. Everything was going great. And I tried to make sure everything would be smooth so we'd have just great memories that were made together. In fact, here's a picture that I threw on the gram out there. First camp out. This is right before bed at like 1035. He's delirious in the left picture for sure. <laughs> but he's also loving it. And we're sleeping in this little small tent, just he and I together. Go to bed. Everything was great. Until 345, in the morning when I hear him say, dad, 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 oh, wake up. And he's like, can you open this water bottle? My tummy hurts. And then he begins to Whoa, throw up all over this tiny little tent. <laughs> and so many emotions go through like, wow, that is a shocking amount of throw up in this moment. <laughs> and also how do we clean this up? And it's gonna be okay and you're okay. And hey, drink some water. And so I'm cleaning it all up, trying to scrape it off, trying to get it outside of the tent so we can get some sleep again together and everything would be going so smooth. And then this, and what does that have to do with Romans chapter eight? (laughs) Nothing. I just needed some sympathy and uh, (laughs) no, not at all. Romans chapter eight is Paul's transition out of Romans chapter seven, where he spent the last 40 verses and he walks through the most common human experience trying to follow Jesus, which is, I want to follow God with all of my heart and I've trusted in Jesus and I believe the Bible and I wanna do everything it calls me to do and I wanna be the man it calls me to be, but I can't. And it's not because of the problems on the outside, it's because of something on the inside. In other words, what was an obstacle to having a great camping experience was not obstacles on the outside, it was a problem coming from the inside. And Paul is going to say that, similar to what is an obstacle for having a good campout, a good time in a campout, to live a good life, in this life, the problem doesn't come from the outside, it's a problem on the inside. And he spent the last 40 verses of chapter 7 building this incredible tension he's about to relieve, but some of the verses he writes are incredibly relatable, coming from this tower of the faith, the Apostle Paul, who wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else, but... What he writes in chapter seven, if you missed it last week, you've got to go listen and check it out. But let me read a couple verses that everyone in here can relate to. Paul says in verse 18 of chapter seven, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature, in my flesh. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I mean, if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, you have realized and experienced what the Apostle Paul is saying, that, man, I love Jesus. I'm trying to follow him, but there's something broken, and it's not coming from the outside. It comes from the inside, that I love Jesus, but I still lose my temper. I don't want to be someone who lusts after people who are not my wife, but I find myself wanting to in doing so. I don't want to be controlling over my kids, but I find myself unable to not. And the Apostle Paul would say, welcome to the human experience. And he builds all of this tension. And in verse 24, it's the climactic verse of the chapter where he says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Paul says, the problem is not on the outside. It comes from the inside. And then in chapter 8, all of that tension gets relieved. where he begins to walk through the Christian life. And what it looks like and its implications. And he points out three different persons of the Trinity. What Jesus has done, what the Spirit is doing, and what the Father has done and is doing. And I want to walk through and highlight some of those things. Because he begins to walk through how you and I in Christ have been changed. And how all of that tension between I don't do what I want to do, but I do things I don't want to do. All of that gets relieved. And so I want to go slowly through the text again and highlight it. I'm going to start in verse 1 and walk through what the Son has done, what the Spirit has done, what God has done, and highlight those things. So verse one, therefore there is now no condemnation, no judgment, no guilt, for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, or what obedience, or what following the rules was powerless to do, Because it was weakened by the sinful nature, by the flesh, God did, God accomplished by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering or to be a payment for sin. And so he condemned, not you, but sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law, the standard that was required, Might be fully met in us, not by us, in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The first idea that Paul brings up is when you put your faith in Jesus, when a person trusts in Christ, whether they have that tension and that wrestle of not doing what they want to do or not, the Son frees them from condemnation. The first point from the text the Son frees us from condemnation. When you accepted Jesus as the sin offering or as the payment for your sin, past, present, future, I accept what you did on my behalf, dying in my place. After living the life I never could, you died the death I deserved. And I accept that was payment for my sin. Paul says, You've been placed out of the realm of condemnation and set free. And now, guilt, condemnation, any feelings of that that you have, those are not true. They are lies because Jesus the Son has set you free from condemnation. Paul brings up in Christ, not in you, not in behavior. Paul's favorite term to describe the Christian position, the new life, is in Christ. It's a term in the Bible that's used 83 times. 80 of them are by the Apostle Paul. And he says, this is now in Christ, no condemnation. Sharply distinct from chapter 7. Chapter 7 has 40 personal pronouns used. It's all about in me. Me, and me, and me. And then he transitions and says, thanks be to God, now in Christ. There is no condemnation. If you feel condemnation... It is a lie. It's a pretty staggering, shocking thing. He says the way we get right with God, and this is what Christians have always believed. If you're not a Christian, this may help you, have never taught that obedience and following the rules is the way you have a right standing with God. Christianity teaches that you could never earn your way to have a relationship with God. It's only by what Jesus did as a payment for your sin and accepting that payment that you have eternal life. You have right standing with God. You are free from any condemnation in this life regardless of your behavior. And that standing does not change. Distinct from every other world religion. Our world doesn't honestly fully understand how Christianity is distinct and separate. Every other world, major world religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, teaches. It is based on your behavior. Number of times you pray, alms that you give, sacrifices you make, behavior, and good deeds, good deeds that you do, that you have a good standing with God. Christianity teaches the opposite that no amount of behavior could ever change that. Only by accepting Jesus and what he did on the cross, as payment for your sin, and his resurrection from the dead is proof of that payment. Our role is to accept, and when that happens, Paul says, you've placed in Christ all condemnation for the rest of your life is gone. God has, if you will, extended a divine pardon to humanity to cover all of every person's sin. In our country, we have something called the presidential pardon. It's the ability for the president of the United States to extend a pardon to any person for any crime that has been committed and pardon them from the sentence that they received. In the history of our country, there's only been one occasion where a person declined the presidential pardon. It was in 1829. It was a guy named George Wilson, and he was arrested and tried for killing a post office worker, a postal worker, delivering mail. He robbed the postal worker. He killed him. He was arrested, tried, convicted of killing this man and sentenced to death by hanging. Now, George Wilson had friends in high places, and some of them were connected to the president of the United States at the time, President Andrew Jackson. And so Andrew Jackson extends a presidential pardon to George Wilson. And George Wilson did something that prior to that time had never happened before where he was extended the pardon in the judicial system and in jail, and they said, you're free to go, you bid pardon. And he said, nah, I don't accept it. Now, we don't know why. I mean, there were conclusions drawn of like, he believed somebody was gonna break him out or he believed that it would be an omission of guilt, but he declined, and they, they didn't know what to do. They were like, we told him we could go home and leave the jail, and he was like, nah, I'm good. And the court sent the case all through the court system and went all the way to the Supreme Court. What do you do when a person rejects a presidential pardon? And here's what Chief Justice Marshall declared A pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws, the president. But delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is given. And we have no power in a court to force it upon him. The president issued a pardon, but we will not force person to accept and receive that no strings attached free gift pardon. The Bible teaches Christianity says, and what Paul's teaching is that God has issued a divine pardon to all of humanity, not through their behavior, but through be placed in Christ in the payment on the cross that he didn't just pardon, he also provided a payment. And our role is to accept that. And when you and I do, all condemnation, shame, and guilt are no longer feelings that have any truth behind them because you have been set free. The son sets us free from condemnation. Then Paul goes into the role that the spirit, for those of us who are now, when you trusted in Jesus, this happened. And the role that the spirit is playing inside of a life. He says this. Those who live according to the flesh, that's I do whatever comes naturally. Do whatever I want. They set their minds on what the flesh, their sin nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit, they set their minds on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death or it leads to death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, which it is when you trusted in Jesus, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you, bringing life. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh or to our sin nature to live according to it. For if you live according to that, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Man, there's so much to unpack that I don't have time and I wish that I did. But Paul is saying, when you were placed in Christ, his Spirit was placed in you. And he is now seeking to lead you in this life to life and peace. That the Spirit, Paul would say, leads us to life. So the Son frees us from condemnation. The Spirit leads us to life. That's the second idea from the text. Like, You may not have ever thought of it. What Paul says is the Spirit of God is actively at work in the people of God's lives. And he walks through how he begins to lead. And another translation for the word leads is beckons. That begins to prompt, to move, to encourage, to beckon you towards life. This is why Christians live differently, not because they have to in order to earn God's love, it's because they are different. They've been given a new spirit that begins to lead them to life. It's not just some of this. My son is also on a five-year-old soccer team that I coach, and he uh, had his first game a couple weekends ago. And so we got the team together. Everybody practiced, teaching them how to play the game. The game day comes, and we get destroyed. I mean <laughs> destroyed. At one point, the ref stops keeping score because it was just so bad. It's twelve to 0 plus some. At one point, a kid on the other team runs down this thing, runs down the field, and does a sliding kick into the goal. If that wasn't bad enough, he then gets up and runs in front of the fans, which is like eight people, and he does a sliding knee slide with the Superman. He's five. It was like, I don't know whether to be angry or just impressed that we get to play with Pele here. And uh, If that I assumed it had to be the best team that was out there. So let's go back and let's learn how to play at practice that week. And then we're going to come play this team. Boy, was I wrong. Because the next Saturday we have a game and we show up and this team was unbelievable. They beat us 13 to zero. They're out there running plays. The coach is over there saying, get in the diamond formation. I'm like, the diamond formation? In the second half, they only played. It was four on four soccer. They like had mercy. And they were like, we're just going to keep three out there. And they had to pass it eight times before they could score. And we still got scored on by our own self, kicking it into the goal. It's like, this is, I, I have failed all of you as a coach. And I found out after the game, the other team, parents, had hired a professional coach to be the team I know. It's like, they're five. Somebody's got an idolatry problem here, people. I'm kidding. If, if that's your team, man, good on you. And, uh, <sighs> Can we get a two-for-one deal? Because our team could use some help. <laughs> but all along the way, that coach was teaching and instructing them and telling them, here's what you do, and here's how you pass the ball, and here's how to kick the goal. Unlike our team that's picking dandelions and like, just concerned about the juice box, he's walking through, here's drills that you do, and he coaches them on how to succeed. The Apostle Paul, all throughout the Bible and here, it says that this is the spirit now at work in your life that he's coming in and he's prompting and he's encouraging to help you succeed at moving in the direction of life, of relationships that flourish, of peace in your heart, of experiencing the purpose God has for you. I mean, there's times, and if you follow Jesus, you know this, there's times the Spirit, he just, he interrupts your regularly scheduled program and begins to prompt and say, I don't know if I would have said it like that. Or, Afterwards, you do say something and you're like, man, I'm justifying that. And he begins to say, I think you need to ask for forgiveness for that. And you're like, man, I don't want to ask for forgiveness for that. And he's like, I think you need to ask. Or I don't think you should buy that. I know it's on sale and nobody else, but I don't. And you just begin to experience the prompting. Or I think you should share your faith with that person. I think you should take that bonus and you should give it to this Opportunity. Like He just begins to come in. It's a part of following Jesus. He beckons and prompts because it's the Spirit, Paul would say, actively at work, leading. How do I know if it's the Spirit's prompting? Well, Paul here says that it involves the mind. It begins to work through the mind. The Bible teaches that one of the ways the Spirit transforms us is through the thoughts and the mind, setting the mind on things of the Spirit. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says that you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may be able to discern what the will of God is. That God is in the business of changing our thinking to how he thinks, to better able to discern and do what he says. Change the direction of our mind, which changes the direction of our life. What does that look like? It certainly involves knowing and studying scriptures. Because the Holy Spirit always prompts, beckons, leads in a direction that is consistent with the scriptures. He never contradicts, in other words, The spirit of God never contradicts the word of God. And in doing so, we familiarize ourselves with, man, these are the truths, the voice of God. The spirit is going to direct and prompt so many people. I work with young adults. I hear it all the time. I see it every week on Instagram or on whatever social media was. Everybody's obsessed with, I want a word from God. I want a word from God. I came to church. Man, pastor, that was a word today. Everyone's obsessed with the word from God. And yet so few people read the word of God. And here's why this matters. Because if you don't know the word of God, you will not be as easily able to detect promptings from the spirit of God. Here's why. Because you're not familiar with his voice. We have people in our life, there's relationships we all have where we would say, uh, man, I know them to the point where like, if you told me a story that they had told you or something they told you to pass on, I would be like, man, that sounds like something they would say. And then there's people that we know so well that, If we heard someone say, oh, they told me to do this, you'd go, that doesn't sound like something they would say. Like, I know them. I I know their voice. And so few Christians often live not knowing the word of God, so then it becomes they're not able to detect, that sounds like something he would say. I'm pretty sure this is what God's leading, prompting me, beckoning me to do, because I know the Bible, and it sounds like something he would say. And they become just weird, prophetic, like, you know, I feel like God told me to buy a roast beef sandwich. And it's like, that doesn't sound like something he would say. I'm not saying he could. That doesn't sound. And they miss the times where the spirit is prompting, saying, hey, you're on a two-hour flight with this person. I think you should share your faith. No, I don't know what that was. that was, I couldn't have been the spirit. That probably was just, I don't know. But it's because they, they don't know the voice of God because they don't know the word of God so they can't detect, man, that sounds like something he would say. And Paul says, spirit is going to prompt and lead you. And when he does, it's always consistent with the word of God. The work of the spirit. And again, this is coming out of chapter seven, where Paul says, there's something broken in me naturally. And yet God is working to bring something supernaturally about in my life. It's not dissimilar to this, or it's similar to this. In my house, we have something called Flower beds in the front yard. Now, a flower bed, in my opinion, is a bad description or title for flower beds. Why? Because naturally, my flower beds don't grow flowers. They grow weeds. I think they should change the name to weed beds. Because it's a more accurate description of actually what naturally takes place there. In other words, apart from a person, someone on the outside, myself, my wife, coming in and planting something new and life and beautiful, aka flowers, those weeds are not in and of and naturally on themselves going to grow any flower beds or any flowers because they're weed beds. They naturally produce weeds. So do you. Probably never thought about it like that, but it's the truth. In a similar way, you and I naturally, like a flower bed, grow weeds. You and I naturally grow sin apart from the person of God and the spirit of God coming in And producing what you don't naturally and I don't naturally on our own, which is not the flowers, but things of beauty and new life, you and I will not grow them. It is a work of God, work of the Spirit, to bring about what naturally you and I do not. And Paul says that is what the Spirit of God, through those promptings, through his leading and overarching, that is what he's doing in your life. He is working to bring about life and produce what you and I naturally on our own cannot. So the Spirit of God leads us, Son of God frees us from condemnation. The Spirit of God leads us to life. And then he goes into what the Father has done. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. What are you saying, Paul? You're saying the Spirit you received, you no longer live like, man, if I don't do good or if I do do good, that determines my relationship with God. No, you're not a slave. You are a son. The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. By him, we cry, Abba, Father. I'm going to come back to that word because it's a really important word. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. We are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. These next words were so powerful to me this week. And co-heirs with Christ, the inheritance of Jesus, the sinless, perfect son of God, the standing he has, is yours if you are a follower of Christ. The inheritance awaiting him is yours if you have put your faith in Jesus. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul brings up the topic of adoption, that you and I have been adopted by the Father and our God's children. The third idea from the text is the Father adopts us as children. Now, he brings up adoption. And this is an important distinction to understand. When Paul brings up adoption, what his audience would have thought is different from what our audience would think. Why do I say that? Because when we think adoption, we think what? We think babies, we think children, we think orphanages, Those things didn't exist. Orphanages and humanitarian aid efforts to move children into the adoption of parents, those didn't exist in the first century in Rome. His audience didn't think children, they didn't think babies. When he heard the word adoption, they think or thought adults. Why do I say that? Because the most common form of adoption in this day and age would have been adults adopting another adult. Someone that they saw of promise or heir. What do I mean? Did you know the most common transition or succession for the emperors or the Caesars of Rome was not from their bloodline. They could have handed it to their kids. They would do what often happened in that day and age where somebody would go, yeah, my kids are definitely not responsible enough to handle this. And so they'd look around and be like, Bob, he looks like a young strapping lad. Let's transfer everything to Bob. So that, so much so, so that almost the majority of the emperors When they would transition and go from one emperor to the next, they would look around and they would say, I'm adopting him. Caesar, Julius Caesar, you may have heard that term. He's the very first emperor of the Roman Empire. When he was about to die, he wrote in his will, I would like to adopt Caesar Augustus. He's not related to me. We have no blood, but he looks like somebody that I would handle to be responsible. And in that moment, when they were adopted, all of the rights, privileges, and standing of a natural child were transferred. And they, though they had no human relationship with that person, they were seen entirely under the legal status of adopted. All the privileges and rights of a natural heir are yours. And his audience is hearing that when you trusted in Jesus, all of the privileges, natural rights that were all conferred and deserved by Christ are yours. But he doesn't just leave it at a legal reality. He brings it into an intimate understanding of Not just legally and status-wise you have that. He begins to describe the relationship that Christians are invited to and have with their father and uses terms that are incredibly intimate. Why do I say that? He says that the Spirit, when you were adopted in his sons, now you have the Spirit inside of you that cries out, Abba, Father. Now, you may have heard this before, but I want you to think about it. The New Testament was written in Greek. Abba is not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. When Paul wrote this verse, it's as though he was saying, man, it's like the Spirit, he he cries out, Father. No, it's it's more than that. It's more intimate than that. And he couldn't think of a word in the Greek language that could accurately describe the emotional relationship that you and I as Christians have with Father. And he spoke Aramaic, and everyone spoke Aramaic, so he just rips this word out and says, we're going to use that term, and I'm not even going to use or worry about the Greek Because it's Abba, Father. Now, what does Abba mean? Roughly, it's, it's a more intimate, less formal. The closest synonymous word would be something more like daddy or papa. It's borderline irreverent. And it certainly was irreverent for Jewish men and women. And certainly for most of Paul's life where he was extremely Jewish, incredibly religious, religious leader. He never would have used the term Abba father when he talked to God. They had a word for even approaching God and it was the name. I'm praying to the name. And Paul becomes a Christian and everything changes. And the only person, the first person that uses the term Abba, daddy, father, in the whole New Testament that we have any reference of outside of the New Testament even, was Jesus. In Mark chapter 14, he's praying and he's hours away from death. And he prays, Abba or daddy, Father, Dad, everything is possible for you. Take this cup, yet not what I will, but what you will. Dad, please don't let this happen. And Paul now says the same intimacy Jesus experienced, the same intimacy that Jesus was invited to, that Jesus had, is yours in Christ. And God looks at you and invites you to see Him as intimately, loving with his favor towards you because you are a child of God. It's a pretty staggering, simple truth that most of us hear, but few of us actually live in reality of. And Paul would say, you have been given not just the standing of Christ, but the relational status that God has invited you to. My son, on that camp out, I was so, I was so excited just leading up to it. And it wasn't because I was excited to sleep on the ground. It wasn't, because liked it wasn't because I like sleeping without air conditioning. was it because I like the... Uh, not even mediocre eggs that come from a camp, you know, uh, mess hall. It's because I was so excited to spend time with my son, to be together, to make memories, and to be with him. Paul describes a relationship that for many of us, at least for me, I know, of a father that's so intimate, that wants to be with you, that wants to walk with you, that wants to know, here's how much I love you, here's how I see you, it doesn't change. You are my son, you are my daughter. My favor is always towards you. Nothing can condemn you. Anyone who tells you you're condemned is telling you lies. Is you my boy? It's hard for me to fully believe. And all of us have journeys with parents and imperfections, and that truth of Jesus is not the reflection of our heavenly or earthly fathers, He's the perfection. God is the perfection of them. In conclusion, the Son frees us from condemnation. The Spirit leads us in this life. And the Father has adopted you as an heir, as a son. All of this, all the work that God is doing is accomplished by him. And we've been hammering home in this entire series that the Spirit is the one, God is the one who accomplishes what we could not even if we wanted to. This past uh, weekend, like I said, I was camping, and the next morning after the 3 a.m., you know, we wake up, and my son still wanted to go on the hike. And you're kind of torn as a father there because you're like, oh, man, I don't know how that's going to go. Are you sure you're feeling up for it? All the boys were going on this hike, hype up. All right, let's give it a try. So we hike up, we're over at Possum Kingdom Lake and we get to the top and we see this incredible view that has a name, I can't remember it, but there we are. Five minutes into that hike, he was still sick and he's still throwing up and he didn't want to turn around, but he also couldn't keep going. And so I put him on my back I said, all right, we're going to piggyback. We're going to walk up. And the times where he could walk, I'd hold his hand and walk with him. And I took him up. He was in a place where he wanted to make the journey. But physically and personally and individually, he could not on his own, no effort, no amount, even though he wanted to do that and go there, he could not on his own. No matter how hard he would have tried. The Christian journey is one where the God who is there says, man, even if you have the desire to live the life of Christ, it is one that you cannot do on your own. But I, like any loving father, through the work of my spirit, And through what Jesus, my son, did on the cross, I'm going to carry you to a place. You may have the desire to go, but you do not have the ability, but you don't have to worry, because I am going to lead you there. All of the children of God are led or carried by the Spirit of God through the work of the Son of God, a part of the family of God. And I'm going to lead you. And that's what he's doing in the Christian life. And you may not realize it. You may not feel like it, but this is the journey he has you on. And this frees us from having to perform for God. It frees us from having to pretend like everything's perfect in life because anything good in my life, he's responsible for everything good that will be about my life or produced in my life. He is responsible for. I may have the desire to do it, but I cannot do it on my own. I am incapable. And my role is to walk in dependence, surrender, open hands, open heart. God, take my life. Use it. I can't get there on my own. Will you carry and lead me? And that posture over and over is the one that God, at different speeds and different ways, begins to bring about the life of Christ. As we said, you can't live the life of Christ. Only Jesus can do that. But you and I, through surrender to him, can experience him bringing about and carrying us to where we could not make it on our own let me pray father i thank you that you have made a wide open door through the cross for anyone listening to this message or listening in the room to have a relationship with you sin is no longer an issue because you dealt with it on the cross there is no barrier other than acceptance and so I pray for anyone who's never had a moment they've received and accepted what you did on their behalf that today would be their day I pray that you would allow us to experience you producing more and more of the life of Christ in us in our hearts would start with me that you would make us more like Jesus more in tune with the Spirit of God and his beckoning and prompting and you would allow us to walk in the freedom that Paul staggeringly introduces us to you don't have condemnation you are a child of god the heir inheritance of christ is yours the standing of christ and the intimacy with the father in heaven is yours and so would you be bigger than all the lies and all the ways that, that is difficult for us to grasp and hold on to and accept we love you christ amen